HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold. You're a host of Cooking Issues coming to you live from Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans, Louisiana. Nastasha, as always, is back in Bushwick, Bushwick, Brooklyn, at Roberta's Pizzeria with Jack and Joe and the rest of the Heritage Radio gang. How you doing, guys? Good. Good. Nastasia was just telling me how much she likes Brooklyn. No, I yeah? No, I wasn't. Really? Were no. you actually saying that, or was no. it more anti-hister uh, no, vitriol? Was, that was a lie. It was a lie. I said, they're having their block party, and I said, I wish I liked Brooklyn so that I could come. Uh, <laughs> well, let's uh, let's push their block party. When's the block party? It's on Saturday. You know what? We'll play the block party commercial on one of the breaks. It's it's a it's a trip. Yeah, yeah. It is a All trip. Right. Block party. If you like going to Brooklyn and you like block parties, two things I actually detest because you know, being outside in the daytime and like large groups of people, like I detest when they shut down. And no offense to people who love it, but I detest like street fairs in New York when they shut down whole avenues. And then you like walk up and down, and it's all the people. You hate that too, Nastasha, right? Yeah, I hate it. My friends love it. I hate it too. Yeah, but it's, it sucks. I mean, who needs it? I mean, I can go to a regular store and buy a pair of socks. Isn't that what they sell there? <laughs> yeah, but the corn, the corn, I must is pretty good. Like the corn and butter and chili sauce, all, all the arepas. Weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, arepa, fine product, bad name. Yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, I'll hand it to you on that. But uh, yeah. The shirts and the socks yeah, right. and are bad. Yeah, but uh, all the all the people Sheets. and then like I always need to we always need to move equipment whenever there's one of those things and then you hit them and then the traffic is insane and all this other. Eh, eh, mm. eh. How's eh. New Why doesn't anyone just set up a shop to sell arepas and corn? A real freaking shop, and then you would know. Hey, I want like a giant thing of corn dipped in butter with some spice sprayed at that thing, <laughs> and I could just go to the shop and get that thing. They don't you know what I mean? Because they have to pay rent at a shop. They, you know. The street fair. Yeah, but there's like plenty of things bucks. that you have to pay rent for that people go and shop for and purchase. Why not corn? I, yeah. How much? How much? How much is one of those years of corn at the at the I'd thing? Say a dollar. It's a dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on. I mean, that doesn't it cost them almost nothing. I'm sure. I guess the problem is that it's seasonal because you're only getting corn in the summer, and right. then what do you what do you dip in butter for the rest of the year? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they don't want to move to like a co- frozen ear of corn situation. Those things are always disappointing. The frozen ear of corn. You ever had that? No. 
you buy the frozen ear of corn in the supermarket, and then you try and cook it, and you hope it's going to be as good as corn is, you know, in like uh, July, August, but it isn't. No. Yeah, it don't start. If you haven't started already, don't start now. <laughs> How's New Orleans? I mean, I literally, we just, you know, got here, checked into the hotel, and then, uh, you know, started doing the research uh, for the show. But it's, you know, like you'd expect, hot as hell. Mm-hmm. Humid. Humid. And the cocktail people have already descended. So for those of you that don't know, every year, right around now, uh, there's Tales of the Cocktail, which for the cocktail industry is the biggest kind of, it's the biggest event of the year. You know, like a, a huge uh, chunk of the kind of, whatever you want to call them, cocktail intelligence, whatever the hell you want to call them, from all over the country, in fact, the world, fly in here uh, to learn from each other and, I guess, drink a lot. And uh, they have it in New Orleans in the middle of the summer because no one else wants to be here, and only the cocktail people are dumb enough to come to New York in the uh, come to New Orleans rather in the middle of the summer when it's a billion degrees and 100 percent humidity. But uh, the the advantage is hotels are cheap right now. Hotels are cheap here. It's like 100 bucks a night to stay in New Orleans right now. Mm. And then Nastasha, not a big fan. Not a big fan. Not a big fan. Okay. Uh, now, to, oh, by the way, calling your questions live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. I believe we still have an open line to take a caller in, even though I am using one to call in from my hotel room. That's correct. Uh, for, yeah. First question from Fred. Hey, Dave, uh, Nastasha, Jack, Indy Jesus, and all the rest. Which, by the way, just say Joe. You don't see all the rest. This is like, this is like one of those situations. Uh, this is one of those situations like with the with the with the skipper and Marianne with the yeah, with Gilligan's the, with Island, the Gilligan's okay. Island, where all the they had to do was say one last person, and instead they just say the rest. It's Joe. But but they might be on like back podcasts and they haven't caught up yet. You know, so yeah yeah. All right. Anyway, and remember, Indy Jesus is no longer part of our. They of might our be crew. on the, the old podcast. They might be catching up. Right, right. But for, so you know, Indy Jesus, because he hates Nastasha, has quit the shift that's on Tuesdays. Yes. So we we might have to switch our radio show day to match up uh, Indy Jesus. Sundays, uh, Dave, Sunday, no, no. Sunday, crazy, no, 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 it's crazy that Jesus works on Sunday, though. No. <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, Fred writes in, I recently picked up a turkey roaster. It's a Hamilton Beach model 32503. Is it possible to deep fry in one of those things? How good is the temperature control? Thanks, Fred. Okay, so what we're talking about are these uh, ovens that, uh, well, kind of ovens. They look like giant crock pots. Um, this one, uh, I looked it up. It's 18 quart, which is, I think, one of the standard sizes. This particular model discontinued, uh, but they have a pan that you can pull out and wash out. You throw the turkey on top of a rack into the pan, and you roast your turkey, and it, theoretically it's faster. Also, it frees up your oven so that you can, on Thanksgiving time, use your oven for all the rest of the nonsense that you need your oven for and cook your turkey in this, uh, in this kind of basically this, in quotes, oven. Uh, Kind of like you know, like a Dutch. It's like cooking in a, in a Dutch oven with its own its own heat source. Um, and I think I mentioned on the show once or twice that I had one of those that I bought at a thrift shop from the you know it was from the '60s or something like that. And I bought it in a thrift shop in college. And I used to bake bread in it, and I loved it. It was great. Uh, smelled horrible because there was something wrong with the insides of it, but it still worked great and it made great bread. Um, well, great bread for for that. Great bread for a dorm room. Let's put it that way. I mean, I don't you know not great bread compared to what our listeners think of as great bread. Anyway. Will it work as a deep fryer? It clearly gets hot enough to work as a deep fryer, and I looked up the wattage on, uh, on, a, on a representative one. I couldn't find the exact one to find the wattage, but the wattage is somewhere in the area of 1,400 watts. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, I doubt you're going to find a uh, fryer that plugs into a normal socket that's much higher than that. Like maybe it would go up to 1,500 watts. 
uh, maybe a little bit higher. But uh, none of the electric plug-in fryers really have uh, as many watts as I would want them to have. Uh, to, because the key for uh, frying is, of course, uh, fast uh, recovery. Now, uh, now the way that these things work is that the pan uh, that you put in, into it with the, with the turkey in it rests on the plate that's actually doing the heating. So you're going to have some issue about uh, some heat loss in between the plate and the, and, and the pan. But I'm mostly worried about stuff falling to the bottom and scorching on the bottom as the heater clicks uh, off and on. I don't think the heating control is going to be very accurate at all. But I don't think it's that necessary to have super accurate um, heat uh, for deep frying. But uh, I think your main problem is going to be uh, scorching of particles on the bottom because a, a fryer that's really, really good at its job isn't going to be heating uh, the electrical element. It's not going to be the very bottom of the unit. The element will be floating somewhat above the surface of the oil uh, such that particles can fall underneath it and not scorch on the thing that's actually being heated. It's a better way to fry, especially it doesn't matter so much if you're doing something like donuts because donuts don't throw off a lot of little particles. But if you're doing something like chicken in a batter and the batter is going to fall off, those little bits of flour get burnt and are going to get nasty against the bottom of the pan. That said, it should work. I do not think anyone will actually recommend that you do it because I'm sure the insurance on a fryer is a lot more and you want to make sure you don't uh, have it overflow and uh, ignite and or burn you or scorch you or anything like that. So I'm not going to make any claims to the uh, safety of it, but I mean it should be able to do an okay job. Now here's the other problem. Uh, 1,400 watts is going to be enough power for a small, small fryer to get up really hot really fast. But 1,400 watts distributed over something the size of an 18-quart uh, roasting oven is not going to be that much power. And, and in the end, so even though it's fairly powerful for what would be a home fryer, it's a lot bigger than what a home fryer would be. And so I think it's going to be sucking wind when you throw stuff in it. So if you were to heat it up to temperature and only throw a couple little things in, you might be able to get good results. But I would bet that if you really loaded it down with like, you know, like, you know, a whole fried chicken or something like that, that the temperature would drop drastically and that you'd have some problems. But that's uh, just my guess. If you, um, if you, it is powerful enough for you and you just don't think the temperature control is good enough, you could buy a simple PID, uh, you know, PID temperature controller and, uh, and a thermocouple and bypass the thermostat entirely. Just plug it. Although you don't want PID. You've got to switch it, turn it off of PID, which is going to be a very accurate temperature control. And for deep frying, you want on-off. But most good PID controllers that you buy, you can turn them into on-off controllers, right? Uh, so a PID controller, like, it's just going to slowly get up to the temperature and not overshoot. You don't care if you overshoot a little bit. You just want it to get up there fast. So as soon as the temperature of the oil drops, you want it to go on full blast. But then you can have an external control that can be very accurate and, uh, well, as accurate as an on-off or bang-bang uh, thermostat can be. Uh, and that wouldn't add that much to the cost. But you might have a, a power problem. What do you think, Stas? That's a good answer. Good answer? All right. Um, from Colin. Dearest y'all, could you revive uh, this question, are pressure-cooked jams a good idea? So I had to go back, uh, I think it was in May, and found uh, Colin's question on pressure-cooked jams. A few weeks ago, um, I bought a whole boatload of uh, kumquats and made marmalade, and then they wanted, he wanted to know, could marmalade or jam in, jam in general be prepared in a pressure cooker to prevent the loss of volatile flavors? Because he realized that the smell that, he was, uh, that was coming off of the pot was a uh, smell that was being lost, right? 
That's the theory, right? Uh, and so, basically, he says, what I understand is happening is that the boiling temperature of the uh, marmalade or jam solution increases as water is being boiled off, and that stopping at a particular temperature in a pressure cook, uh, I mean, sorry, stopping at a particular temperature when you're cooking a jam is equivalent to stopping at a particular uh, hydration level or amount of water or, you know, or the, or the solids level that's in it. Uh, and that we add extra water to a jam recipe because the pectin needs time uh, to cook and break out, um, and, and there, there you have it. Um, so the question is, could he seal the mixture in a pressure cooker and cook the jam without losing uh, water or volatiles and get an equivalent texture with improved flavor? The boiling temperature will increase at the incre- increased pressure, but do you think that will affect the pectin uh, uh, slash pro- you know, properties of the jam overall? I suppose there could be more thermal breakdown of flavor in a pressure cooker uh, despite the decreased loss of volatiles. What are my thoughts? Okay. Well, if you're going to do it this First of all, uh, here's the here's the issue. If you knew, uh, I'd have to do some research, and maybe during the commercial break I can look it up because I, I forgot to look it up. But you need what you need to know is the actual solids level of the uh, jam that you're that you're shooting for. If the solids level of the bricks is reasonable, like in the on the order of sixty percent or or or, or thereabouts, seventy uh, percent even, then you could uh, probably just add the ingredients to a jar in a pressure cooker, uh, seal it, so even if you had a non uh, a venting pressure cooker, which I don't like using, I like using non-venting pressure cookers in general because they, uh, I think they do a better job with flavor, but if you're sealing in a canning jar, it doesn't make much difference. Uh, and, and pressure cook it uh, at that higher temperature, you could conceivably get uh, a product that will work. But you have to know beforehand what the solid level of the fruit pulp is and uh, then therefore calculate how much sugar to add to it, and you'd have to get it fairly accurate. Uh, that is all doable, and if, uh, I don't know, maybe if uh, Jack or Joe has the time to research while we're talking the uh, BRICS level, B-R-I-X level of uh, jam or jelly, uh, we could do a ballpark estimate of whether or not it's feasible to just add all the ingredients, sugar, fruit, etc., into a jar and uh, pressure cook it. But, uh, it, I mean, it might be possible. I don't know. It would be difficult because you'd have to make sure you got it right every time. Does that make sense? Yeah, you have a color. Oh, color, you are on the air. Hey, Dave. Hey, Jack. Hey, Stas. How's it going? Good. This is Matt from This is Matt from Chicago. Howdy. Hi. I had a question about uh, low temperature cooking of skirt steak. Um, okay. I tried it uh, sous vide with a recipe I found on the web, and it was as tough as had I cooked it for you know over a flame for hours. And I'm wondering right. if you had any ideas on how to uh, get better results. Give me the recipe that you used. You know, I don't remember. That's the problem. I think it was the one on the PolyScience uh, website. How how long did you cook it? <sighs> Jeez, it seems like maybe two hours. Yeah, and uh, so he, he, here's here's the thing. So if you're cooking a skirt steak, mm-hmm. uh, it, I, I like to do skirt steak uh, low temp. But what temperature you cook the skirt steak to is entirely dependent upon how long you cook it, right? So if you're only going to cook the skirt steak for a couple of hours, you're going to need to go fairly high, like uh, 
57 Celsius, let's say, which is a good number, 57 Celsius, if you're going to do it for like an hour or 45 minutes or an hour and a half like that. Then you have to cool it down and then sear it because the skirt steak is so thin that if you... Um, if you were to try to sear it directly out of the circulator, just overcook, and you might as well not have done low temp at all. Okay. Okay. I think I, I, think uh, I did actually. I think I did sear it afterwards immediately. So. Yeah. I mean, you have to sear it afterwards, really, or the texture is not going to be sure. very, very good. You know, but, sure, but you I, know, the, I, I was, you know, go ahead. Yeah. The other way to do it is to cook it down near where you'd cook a ribeye, so like fifty-five. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, like uh, nine, nine, ten hours, uh, okay. or you know, and then let it let it cool down again, and then uh, just take it and hard, hard sear it, and that will actually warm up the inside and overcook the outside a little bit. But that's going to give a really, really high quality, tender skirt steak. Um, okay. It, if you're, it, you, the alternative, right, is to sear it beforehand like it's a normal skirt steak and then just quickly throw it into, into, uh, into like a, a, a bag and uh, let, it, let it come up to temp in, in a circulator. The problem is your crust isn't going to be that great afterwards. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Really a good candidate. It isn't a good candidate for the double sear, I, I, I take it. Or is it? Well, you can you, you can. I've done a double sear uh, on it, and with the advantage of the double sear is that um, the second time you sear it, it's going to color and crust up really quickly. Um, yeah. But you know, then you, you might might run the problem that you know something goes wrong and you and you um, and you you know dry it out a little bit. I, if, I would definitely not on skirt steak pre-sear it before you low temp it. Um, okay. because it's going to cure through fairly quickly with the salt. I would definitely, I mean, pepper's fine or whatever, or, or whatever marinade you want, but I would not, uh, I would not salt it um, until right before the second sear. Okay, that's interesting. I, I actually use a lime juice in my marinade, and it just makes it absolutely delicious. And, and I usually just do it the standard, you know, just sear it in a real hot pan after it's marinated a while and don't even bother with low temp, but... I figured I'd try it. I've got a I've got a rig in my basement for for low temp cooking for sous vide, and I figured I'd try it because you know I'm trying everything sous vide now that I got the rig. Uh, right. uh, and some things have turned out really good, but the skirt steak is one thing that did not. And I was just curious if you had any thoughts. So I appreciate right, your here, here, here's what it is. Do this, and you're gonna you're gonna love this. This is what this is the way that I actually cook skirt steak. Right? I would okay. do it. The I would not sear it beforehand. Uh, I would do your do your your marinade or whatever else you want to do. Put it in the bag, cook it. Uh, if you don't have the time, 57 for like I say, like an hour or so, or like 55 for longer, like six, seven, whatever hours. It's going to get more tender. Let it cool down, and then you can even have it in the fridge. Pull it out and do your hard sear on it, just like you were cooking it normally. And what you'll just have is you can focus on that crust, and you just have a much more tender skirt steak on the inside than you would with a normal cooking technique. I'll give that a shot then. All righty, let us know how it worked. All right, thanks a lot, guys. We'll talk to you later. Hi, no problem. You have another call, Dave. What? You have another call. Okay, Hi. caller, you're on the air. Hi, yeah, afternoon. How are you? Good. I'm doing all right. All right, so um, I'm a bit of a home brewer, and um, I've been doing a little bit of shopping on modern, at the Modernist Pantry, and um, I've, been, I've been referred to you uh, to a solution for a problem that I've been having. Um, I've been working on making cream liqueur, um, and uh, I've purchased some sodium caseinate um, from the Modernist Pantry, and 
I, I was initially under the impression that that might help me to combine my dairy with my alcohol that I've been producing. And it, it, it's stable for a little while, but I let it sit out at room temperature for about six hours. And I put it next to a very small amount of already store-bought cream liqueur. And the store-bought cream liqueur remains stable. However, um, mine, it, it doesn't split. Uh, per se, the, um, the the dairy molecules from the water molecules, um, it just separates into layers as, as a thicker um, homogenized cream on the top and a more watery, less viscous liquid on the bottom. Um, right. I'm, I'm doing further research and I'm, I'm finding out that uh, glycerol, uh, monos- glycer- glycerol monosterate might help me out. GSM, um, but I was wondering if you had any advice as far as to how I would implement the GSM if I were to obtain some, and if I may be using the uh, the sodium caseinate incorrectly. Okay, well, I I, uh, I mean, I have a lot of uh, experience with emulsified alcoholic beverages, but not making cream liquors as, as such. Uh, what what you're using actual cream well, with fat in it? Well, I, I, I did one batch with a little with a splash of cream, and then I did another batch with a splash of milk. Um, I also tried use, making my own uh, uh, condensed cream and using condensed, like, uh, you know, with, I, I think I used malt, malt powder, a little bit of sugar, and milk, and a little bit of vanilla, and I made, like, a condensed condensed milk and used, tried to use that. I thought maybe the sugar would be a decent buffer to help bind the dairy to the, to the liquor. Um, I don't know if maybe my alcohol content is something that might be affecting it. I'm at about 22% alcohol content. So okay. I'm not sure. Are you, but you're, you're, um, you're, you're, yeah, so you're not curdling at all. You're just getting phase separation. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm guessing that I mean I don't, I've never researched like uh, like Bailey's or anything like that uh, to see like what the fat content of Bailey's is. But if you're getting a phase separation, it just sounds like you need uh, an emulsifier in there. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and you know what you're mentioning is you know is is an emulsifier. The one that I, I typically use in uh, in the drinks at Booker and Dax. Is probably won't work for your application, uh, or it might. Is a mixture, and this is not what the cream liqueur people use at all. But is a mixture of it's gum arabic, which acts as a, an emulsifier, and right. xanthan, which acts as a stabilizer. Now you right. probably want to go to kind of a more of a hardcore uh, uh, emulsifier when you get when you when you when the phase sep- when you get the phase separation. If you just rock it back and forth, does it go back together or no? It. Uh, I've actually, it does to an extent, but I think it's more of like the temperature that it's been sitting at for a while because all the ingredients, I'm, I'm mixing them sort of like the dairies just from the fridge. You know, I haven't gone, I haven't been able to sit down and test it from letting the dairy sit out at room temperature. I also found that heat became a factor in uh, the initial combination. Uh, it was important that the, that the dairy was warm in order to get the emulsification to work initially. Um, and then once it cools down and it sits and it settles at room temperature for a while, it eventually separates. Um, and I can get it to come back together, 
but then once I let it sit for about another half hour after, you know, uh, spinning it back together, it'll separate again. Right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I like, uh, this is an interesting thing. I should know. I should know this uh, just because of you know what I do for a living. So what I what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to figure out what they do in the industry to make cream liqueurs, and whether or not the what the fat level, if any, is of those things, and kind of figure out how they do it. Uh, and then I'll come back pro- probably not next week because next week I don't know if I'm going to be able to have the the radio show because I'm going to be in the air on the way to um, California I think, but the week after that I'm going to come back and, and answer that question. I'll give you a much more definitive answer. Okay. Okay. Um, and if uh, if by chance are you you are in the city right now, right? I'm a, I'm in New Orleans. The tales of the cocktail. Oh you. Oh okay. I was under the impression that you were in in Manhattan or in New York City. Um, all right. Um, well, would it, would you would you be able to also? I mean, I know that you say you're going to be going back on the air with these answers, but would there be any way you might be able to contact me directly? Uh, it's possible. Give uh, when you when you go off. Give uh, give Jack uh, your info, or maybe we could uh, tweet it out or something like that. Alrighty. All right. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, do you, um, Hi, just thank la- you. La- la- lastly, do you, would you think that the, if I were to purchase some Glycerol Monastery, do you think that that might be a decent avenue to approach? I just don't. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to say yes or no off the top of my head without uh, really doing the research on it. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Hi. Cool. Um, all right. So right before we take the break, right before we take the break. Uh, uh, Joel uh, Gargano writes in, by the way, is from New Haven, which is where the, anyway, so Jack wanted to know, does anyone want the Bluto, the, the, the music from my college days? And we got the first person in, says that they like that. Here's what he, here's what he writes. I wrote in a few months back about soy whipped cream. Your advice helped, and I made some adjustment. It turns out that soft tofu, coconut milk, and some stabilizers uh, works great right out of the siphon, the uh, whipped cream siphon. But more importantly, I want more Bluto. This crap is heavy. Wow. And do we have a do we have a link to any of this anywhere? So Jack, we have someone that wants the Bluto. Wow, there it is. Right. So when you return, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, Joel, no Bluto today because it's only on my iPhone, and uh, we don't have it actually copied over onto the Heritage Radio um, uh, computer. So we're going to have to go because. By the Joel way, Dave, enough of the cheesy jazz. No offense, I like jazz. Plus, he also wants pictures of me getting my face smashed in on stage, which I, I don't think actually exists. Uh, unfor- unfortunately, but uh, you know he wants like stage diving pics and stuff like that. And then he he his suggestion is that we start a band where uh, you know I guess he's going to come in and start start a band with us where we write about Maillard reactions and agar agar clarification. And he wants to call it Maillard and the Reactors. He's going to let me have bass solos in every song, but he only wants to do it if we can get Indy Jesus to be the front man. What do you think, Jack? Ooh, it's, uh, we'll have to see. That's going to be tough. He's in high demand. <laughs> Yeah, Indy, I'm sure every every band in Bushwick wants Indy Jesus as yeah. the front man. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, right? I mean, even Nastasha would go to see no. Indy Jesus as a front man, and she hates hipster bands. Loves bands. Nastasha, by the way, like her one of her great lifetime skills is to be able to get into any any concert for free with, uh, and go backstage without having to perform any sort of awful acts. I retired that. You're retired, but it's like it's a you know it's a great skill. It's yes. like I can shotgun a beer very well. Also, a retired skill of mine. I don't you go around shotgunning beers anymore. You were doing it at the anymore. Jimmy Fallon show. It wasn't retired. It hasn't been retired. I didn't shotgun a beer you at the Jimmy Fallon to. show. You, wa- you asked if you could. Remember? I was joking. Mm-hmm. Joking. 
Plus, they only have, by the way, for those of you who don't know, we're on the Jimmy Fallon show, and one of their sponsors is Bud Light Platinum, which is basically Bud Light where they add some extra booze to it. It's like straight up, they add extra booze, and they put it in like a, a blue bottle that looks like kind of like a Saratoga water or a Tynid bottle. But you can't shotgun out of a bottle, Stas. It shows no, that you know, know about. you asked them if they had cans so that you could shotgun. Yep. Yes. A, a, a joke. Mm-hmm. A joke. I, don't, I no longer shotgun, although I am quite good at it. I'm retired. Anyway. Uh, okay, so why don't we go to our first commercial break, come back with more cooking issues. White Oak Pastures is a 146-year-old, multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meat that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're currently listening to Brothers NYC, Real Long Way to Go, band fronted by our very own Damon Bolte. And we're coming back. We Pop is on the air. Wait, Damon Bolte fronts a band? Yeah, well, I, I guess he's not, the, he's not the front man, but he's the lead guitar. That's his band. Is his, is his twin also in the band? Yeah, that's why they're called Brothers. Oh, yeah. See, it's hard for me to hear over the telephone. I can't hear anything. So we got we got Wee Pop Soupy Pot slash Bam on the phone? Yes. Hi, Dayton of Sunday and Jack. Hi. This is Wee Pop. Wee Pop! <laughs> what's up? How's, how's everything going? Going well. So for those of you that don't know what's going on, uh, Wee Pop Soupy Pot, a.k.a. to the rest of the world, Bam, uh, just got his Kickstarter uh, fully funded, and they're making a uh, relatively low-cost, simple-to-use-at-home immersion circulator. Uh, and uh, what's the cost of this sucker? Uh, it is 359 359 All right, 359 And, uh, you know, I don't know, go on the I don't know, how, how do you buy one of these suckers? So right right now Kickstarter campaign's closed. Uh, so you just go to shop.namiku.com to pre-order one. Now, uh, what's your ETA for actual uh, units? ETA for um, by Christmas. And wow, I'm, by so Christmas. We're give, yeah, yeah we, we have a lot of demands. We're going to give priority to um, the Kickstarter people, but um, we're we're still working that out. It should be the same batch. So uh, uh, I hear that you have uh, something to discuss over the cooking issues airwave regarding this. 
Oh, well. <laughs> silence. Sorry, sorry. I yeah, got, silence. I, so I guess not. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't hear you. Oh, uh, you, you you told me you wanted to speak about Ziploc bags. Oh no. no um. So yeah, we have we have a lot of emails uh, coming in. You know, people being concerned with Ziploc bags, and you know, I I feel like a lot of people still have uh, issues with cooking in plastic. So right. what, what well, we've been specifically, doing is that, um, specifically zip, uh, zip, Ziplocs, though, as opposed to, uh, you know, you're not getting any calls in uh, with questions about cooking in uh, sous vide cooked chill bags, right? You have people calling with right. questions on on the um, the wisdom of using Ziploc bags uh, for right. cooking low temp, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and, well, here's 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 my my thought, and the reason I guess is because uh, on your Kickstarter uh, campaign video there is a uh, a picture of someone putting food in a Ziploc to um, to do the the cooking with the with your device. What's your device called again? Uh, the Namiku. Namiku. N O M I K U. Yeah, Namiku. Yeah, Namiku. So. Um, What's that My mean? feeling on Ziploc bags. Uh, I think I might have told the story once, but uh, you know I could tell it again. Uh, I was doing the Martha Stewart show, uh, and they they decided to just have like a bunch of like tech fools on. So uh, you know Nathan was on via Mirvold was on via you know uh, he wasn't actually on. They they showed you know she did a tour. Martha Stewart did a tour of his uh, his lab there, and they had uh, Grant Akins was on, and uh, and I was on. And uh, so I was talking to Grant backstage, Grant Akins, of course, from Alinea. I was talking backstage that he was getting um, a lot of flack from S.C. Johnson Wax, a family company, which is, I believe, the people that make the Ziploc bag. Uh, and uh, basically, they yelled at him because he had a video on the web where he was using a Ziploc to do, um, to do his low-temperature cooking. And... Uh, and I think it's really strange that they have a problem with it or that anyone has a problem with it because the Ziploc bags are rated for reheating uh, in a nuke, right? I mean, it says right on it that you can reheat uh, stuff in them in a nuke. The issue is um, like a Ziploc bag, and I, I could be wrong, but I'm not, is made out of uh, polyethylene and uh, uh, and food, food, food grade obviously polyethylene and uh, it's the same stuff that um, uh, most plastic wrap is made out of polyethylene and uh, what it can't do is get anywhere near the boiling because boiling point of water 100 C because it the, it gets very very soft there and that's very close to the melting point. However, it works fine uh, in the 50s. And I never really take it above the low 60s ever because I, I don't have a need to, Celsius, that is. Um, but in that range, uh, they are perfectly fine. And I, I can't understand any argument uh, uh, against using Ziploc bags uh, for cooking low temp at those temperatures, so long as you aren't assuming that you're preserving something for any length of time because you haven't put a vacuum seal on it, so long as you're not heating it uh, above uh, any other, uh, you know, uh, you know, above in the 60s somewhere. I can't see any argument whereby cooking in any form of plastic would be okay and not in a Ziploc under those uh, circumstances. Um, right. do, do you know what I'm saying? Other, yeah, yeah. So, like, um, the, the food, food savers, 
and a lot of you know side sealers that are on the market, they're they're using the same kind of material, and somehow somehow those are being like promoted for use with uh, you know like the Louis Supreme or whatever. Right. Well, and, you know, I just well kind of those chill bags. Like, even cook chill, I mean, polyethylene is a good choice, and I'm, I'm having a little trouble hearing you, but polyethylene is a good choice for, um, for food applications just because it, it doesn't have to have plasticizers in it, uh, and it doesn't react with food uh, very much. Usually, those bags that were rated to higher temperatures will have multiple, multiple plastic layers, uh, and so that they keep their uh, integrity at, at, at higher temperatures. Uh, but again, Again, like most of this is completely moot because we're keeping our temperatures very much lower than is ever going to be a problem uh, when we're using low temperature cooking. So I just, I literally, except for the fact that Johnson, S.E. Johnson Wax doesn't, I believe it's S.E. Johnson Wax, does not want to uh, have any sort of liability from saying you can cook in their bags as opposed to, you know, reheating in a very specific way because they don't want to assume that liability. They just say you can't do it and then that, that them saying you can't do it is just getting promulgated on the uh, on the on the on the web and and by people. I mean, I don't really understand any other sort of argument. I would love to hear from somebody what that argument is, but I haven't heard uh, I haven't heard any good reasons. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And also, uh, thank, thanks for the mention last time on uh, Heritage Radio. So our Namiku is actually 750 watts, and uh, some people have been saying, "Oh, that you know, that's too low, whatever." But then I think I think for the purpose of um, maintaining perfect temperatures, I think 750 watts is way more than enough. What do you think? Well, that was the one question I had when I talked about it uh, on the air. Was uh, I mean, like, what was the reason you went 750 instead of the full thousand that uh, most of the other companies are using? Well, that's just the uh, uh, the type of heaters that we're using, and um, for for the size that we're able to get it down to, um, we we've matched it up with 750 watts. We've had some uh, 1,000 watts prototypes, however, but um, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make doesn't make much of a difference like how fast like you can you can heat the water. Like well, the what size bath were you testing on? Relatively the same. Uh, just just the re- regular. Um, I think the 12 12 liter. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean the the ones where like the you know the 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 the, the thousand watt uh, circulators start crapping out uh, anytime you go above a normal full size Lexan, huh? uh, and then they start they start sucking wind. Um, so I mean I, I think it, what just what you're doing by any by you know any sort of power limitation, what you're doing is you're you're um, you're, you're just capping the upper size of the water bath that you can reliably heat with it. Um, you're also capping the recovery rate of it when you drop a large uh, food load into it. So, the, for instance, you know, you, you simply can't maintain easily any temperature. Also, it also depends on the temperatures you're trying to get to. It's a lot easier to get a, you know, a water bath up to 55 Celsius, let's say, than it is to get a water bath up to 85 Celsius, let's say, because you're, there's a lot more losses to the atmosphere because the water wants to go off uh, a lot more as vapor at those temperatures, and so you're having to put a lot more energy in. You're getting, you know, 
you know, it's proportionally uh, a higher temperature relative to ambient, and so you have to drive it harder because you have higher heat losses out of your out of your uh, your vessel. So, um, a normal thousand watt circulator in a in a large Lexan that's you know uh, higher than the one that I normally recommend, I can't really get it to go above about. 55, and I can't, ha- it doesn't really drive an accurate temperature at those levels, uh, you know, when you drop big loads into them. And so I only recommend using giant baths like that with a circulator for reheat where the temperature isn't as accurate, uh, the temperature, uh, the need for accuracy isn't as high. So, it, you know, if you were cooking a smaller, uh, in a smaller vessel, like a half Lexan, let's say, then I'm sure 750 watts is fine but my question would be is is like how would a 750 perform in a full-size lexan versus a thousand watt i don't know i've never i've never done it you know what i mean so i can't tell you um i mean but those are just my concerns i would bet for the for for 90 percent of the people if you were going to work at home very few people at home need to drive anything bigger than a half lexan Right, and and, that, and that's correct. That's why that's why we've designed the Namiku to um, work with, you know, pots of any size from uh, three quarts and up. So we actually uh, that was the, the size that we had in mind, and um, 750 watts is more than adequate for those purposes. Yeah, cool. so, you know, anything anything bigger than um, than the the leg band, then you know you're going a, a little bit overboard. This well, for, for for house, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, you, you, by the way, we pop. Uh, it, you know, you're in Bangkok now, right? Uh, no, I, actually, I'm in San Francisco. I think. Oh. And you're coming here soon. Yeah, yeah, I am. But I might not. So see you. Uh, <laughs> we we because we I, pop I is a product for... designer, but also went to the French Culinary Institute and and worked with us. So he knows that we can over very easily overstuff a full size Lexan. But this isn't designed for that. It's designed for people at home, right? Right. So when are you going to get one for, uh, for us to play with? Uh, as soon as possible. Uh, uh, we're about uh, we're about to go into um, production in China. I leave uh, I leave San Francisco on August first, and uh, we'll we'll be in China for a long time until um, we'll we'll supervise everything until delivery, basically. All right. Well, well. Listen. Congratulations on the new product. And I might just miss you. I think I fly out when you fly. When you fly back. When you get back in the country, uh, you know, come and come and say howdy. We love. We love yeah, ourselves some Weepop. We, we will. Yeah. But yeah, for for anyone out there who's never been to Booker and Backstage Bar um, in New York City, you need to go because not only not only that um, the cocktails are amazing. If you take your dates there, it's gonna feel the deal. <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, check this out. We, for those of you that don't know, We Pop was our very first caller ever into the radio show. Ever. Is that true? And, and, yeah, We Pop, very first caller of all times. And uh, from Bangkok, by the way. And, uh, and you know, if, for those of you that go to the bar, we have a, a Thai basil drink on the menu, but I don't know why they call it Thai basil because, you know, we're actually going to make a holy basil uh, drink uh, coming up soon because we have a, a regular Italian globe-style basil drink that we really like, but we don't want to put two basil drinks on the menu because that's weird. But if we put three basil drinks on, and it turns out Nastasha grows a boatload of holy basil in, in her backyard. What about that, Wee Pop? That, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to call the drink holy basil. 
Holy basil. That's what we're going to call the drink. What do you think? It sounds good, right? I don't know what's in it yet. We've got to get the, the basil and play around with it, but it's going to be there. Don't worry about it. We're going to have, like, we're going to have three basil drinks. We're going to go basil crazy for the, uh, for the midsummer push. <laughs> all basil all the time. Anyway. <laughs> all right, we probably Listen, have a good time in China building your product. We can't wait. Congratulations on the new venture. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. All righty. All right, so let's take one more quick break and come back with a little more cooking issues. Message from Bushwick Block Party on Saturday, July 28th from noon to midnight. Saturday, July 28th. It's a party in the street. Yes, I in La Calle. La Musica. Soft Spot. Cookies. Silicone Sister. Eyes. Your Youth. Natural Child. Tournament. MC Todd Experience featuring Bo Breezy, Sam Weiss, and Boston's best hip hop group, Grey Sky Appeal. Gang Signs. Wild Yaks. No. Solo performances by P. Andrew WK in the Roberta's Garden exclusive Tiki Disco DJ Prior Tango the Third Boyd Ski Ali Escobar Night Show Max Sussman Activitas Waterworld Photo Booth by Ryan Slack Death Killer Still Cage Match featuring Joe Stone Bikini Contest Dirt by Shark Girls Balls Comida Momo Sushi Chef Buddha Cafe Bird Shawarma Heritage Foods USA Genie Brother, Imperial Woodpecker Snowball, Dessert by Katie P, Yuki Robin, Brooklyn Star, Crank Dogs, Sponsored by, in Spanish, Vitamin Water, Wonton Foods, Wonton Vans, Martin Greenfield Clothiers, Momo Sushi Shack, Roberto, Death Killers of Bushwick, Union Beer, Green Fitness, HeritageRadioNetwork.org Main Drag Dr. Bobby Buka Dermatology Jelly, Jelly NYC Jelly, Jelly. Pizza from 12 to 2 while supplies last Limited to one margarita pizza per person Acoustic performances from dear old pals and free advice No sharks will be harmed in the making of this block party Possible performance from Joe Bishop. Somehow some weird thing happened with the phone I was going, sorry folks out there Must have been that block party commercial Hey, we've only got a few minutes left, Dave we got a 1 o'clock, so Alright, cool so uh, I have one last question, so I'll take it right now. Uh, Brian writes in, Hi, guys. Gals, I saw on Star Chef that you guys use grade C maple syrup at the bar. What does it taste like? I want the smokiest, earthiest, funkiest, mushroomy syrup that there is. When I Google around about buying some, I saw that it's only for commercial applications. I also saw that they may have changed the rating system, so the grade C is now grade B. Also, the Canadian rating system is different. What's the deal, and where can I get it? Thanks again, Brian. All right, Brian. Uh, what I did was I called up the maple syrup uh, producer and said, hey, listen, can I have some grade C uh, maple syrup? I know you have it. And he said, all right, don't tell anyone, uh, because I guess he didn't have a label for it or whatever. He poured it into a quart you know, container, uh, you know, a quart uh, maple syrup container, just slapped two Bs on it, which was the code for C grade, and uh, and and I bought it at the at the regular price. Now, uh, those of you that didn't hear anything before that we say the C grade maple syrup is basically maple syrup when it starts its run at the beginning of the season is the lightest and kind of least uh, has the least congeners, least kind of flavor in it. And then as the season progresses, it gets more and more congeners and gets darker 
and has uh, kind of more and more different different flavors. I like the Graves tea, uh, but it can be a little weird. It doesn't necessarily play nice uh, with other ingredients the way uh, that B does. I mean, I, I, I use B in cooking at home. I use B on pancakes. Uh, I use B in drinks, and I think every bartender I know uses B in drinks. Uh, C was a little rough on some of the drinks that we tried it out. I like it. It's really intense, but it can almost go metallic in certain uh, in certain applications. But it's definitely something you should try um, to uh, have around, and uh, hopefully that helps. This has been Cooking Issues. Listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.